Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm Nathaniel Jolly. And I am Eki Tepsipornshai. Well, guys, we have a very special guest today uh, who I know in many ways is uh, dear to both Eki and I, uh, and that is Mr. Phil Johnson. Uh, thank you for joining us, Phil. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I was super excited when you uh, agreed to come on to the podcast. Now, we don't know each other personally, uh, but the connection that we all have is Eki and I attended the Master Seminary. Um, we were just talking about there's there's no way that you get to meet all of the seminary students and that sort of thing. But it is really good, I know, for both of us to have you on. It's it's such a privilege. So thanks for having me. Good to have you guys. Phil, before we get started, there might be um, uh, some of our listeners who aren't really familiar with who you are, what you do. I, I can't imagine that, but that's possible. Been living under um, a rock or something, right? Yeah, those guys who are living under a rock. But uh, why don't you just tell us just a, a little bit about what you do uh, at Grace to You, uh, you're part of Grace Community Church as well. Uh, just give us a little bit about, of, of your background there. Right. I'm, an, I'm a lay elder at Grace Church. I am uh, just, just next week, we'll start my 40th year here. I started here wow. in 1983, came here from Moody Press. Uh, and at the time, uh, Grace to You was it referred to as the tape ministry and the radio ministry, mm -hmm. two different divisions of Grace Church. So I was hired and briefly, I, well, for about two years, was on the church staff in that sense. Then Grace to You became an independent organization. We spun off because we had a fairly sizable budget and, uh, and maybe five minutes on the agenda of the monthly elders meeting. We felt like we needed uh, closer accountability to an actual board of directors. So uh, Grace to you became an independent organization. We never, never needed uh, financial support from the church. It was always a self-supporting, uh, self-funding ministry through sales of cassette tapes and things like that at first, and then with donations. So Grace to you is now a separate organization from Grace Church, but uh, still a sister ministry, a partner ministry. We are located about 25 miles north of the church and the seminary. And that's why I don't know most uh, master seminary students They you can come and, and study here for four or five years. And, and chances are you'll never meet me because my office and uh, most of the time I spend throughout the week is up at grace to you. Uh, so if you run into me at grace church, you might meet me, but uh, that's it. So as far as the church is concerned, I'm a lay elder. I pastor a fellowship group there called Grace Life. We had, uh, just to give you a sample attendance, it's, I, I try to describe it to people. It's like a very large Sunday school class, adult Sunday school class. Very large. <laughs> this past Sunday, we had 560 people in attendance in our Sunday school class. So wow. that's wow. bigger than some churches. Uh, and I am, uh, I share the pastoral duties there with Mike Riccardi. He and I are pastorally responsible for, those people who come to our group, which is called Grace Life. And um, it's almost like a second church service. We basically teach from the scriptures for the better part of an hour. And uh, uh, so 
that's what I do. Those sermons, my sermons and Mike Riccardi's sermons are available at a website called the Grace Life Pulpit. Uh, and then weekly, I mean, during the week, I work at Grace to You. I'm the executive director, so I make sure uh, the ministry just keeps on target and everything keeps running. And then, Phil, I, I was a part of um, Faith Builders and then um, anchored before I'd left. But um, I always thought of Grace Life as the place where your English vocabulary is going to be stretched between you and Mike Riccardi. Yeah, I don't think either Mike or I try to do that. I, I, really, I really don't try to confuse people with big words, but it's, it's probably true that I have a, a thesaurus-like vocabulary because what I've done pretty much all my life is work with words. I've been, I came here because I was a book editor and uh, John MacArthur needed help with his writing ministry. And he thought if he had an actual editor on staff, things would go better. And, and I think they have. Uh, but so I work with words for a living. I love words. Uh, even before I became a Christian, I used to read and listen to William F. Buckley a lot. And he had, he had a massive vocabulary uh, and you get these words in your head and you can't help using them. I, it's not deliberate. Uh, well, and then I know Mike Riccardi um, even described himself as a, as a vocabulary nerd, an English nerd. So just, just English, enjoy the language. Yeah, not only English, but Mike, uh, as you might discern from his, his last name, is of Italian descent. And he speaks fluent Italian as well. Mm. So, uh, Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, Phil, again, it's good to have you on. I, I want to jump into a subject that you're very familiar with, um, and we'll just kind of see where the topic takes us. Um, th- there's a, and, and that's the topic of charismatic continuationist theology. Um, I, I separate those two things, and, and maybe we'll, we'll get into that here at the forefront of the conversation, uh, w- what some of the differences are and, and, and why we might distinguish those uh, two things. Um, y- you know, a few years back, you guys did uh, at the church there, the Strange Fire Conference. Um, I've heard you uh, say a few times everywhere you go, people talk about that conference, uh, asking when they're going to do another one. Um, yeah, I think it would be awesome if you did another one uh, like that. Uh, but um, a lot of times when this conversation gets going, I know there's a bunch of guys out here who do a great job of dealing with the dangers of the charismatic church. Uh, Justin Peters, uh, who's a dear friend, deals a lot with that, has really great material. But w- one of the things um, that I don't hear as much of, at least myself, is w- what are kind of the dangers of that movement for guys in our own circles? Uh, because I often hear, you know, lovely people sitting in the pews of otherwise healthy churches who, if you listen to them talk uh, or, or even pray, you, you hear some of these charismatic ways of thinking uh, in their speech, in their prayers, uh, and that sort of thing. And I think in our circles, maybe the tendency might be, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, to kind of feel like we're, 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 we're pretty solidly guarded against all of that stuff. And, and so there are just other things that we need to worry about. But I'm not sure that that's true. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, it's no question that the charismatic movement has gradually over now about 125 years. I think you trace the start of the modern charismatic movement to the year 1901. And so close to 120 years or so that the charismatic movement has been active. And it originally started as a 
a fringe group that was sort of an offshoot of an extreme, the holiness movement, which was, you know, a, a similar kind of thing without tongues and miracles and all that. Uh, and the charismatic movement revived the emphasis on tongues and miracles. And as I said, at the beginning, it was a fringe group and they were considered strange and outside the realm of orthodox evangelicalism but they have managed to worm their way into not only the mainstream of evangelical theology but roman catholicism and you know to some degree even mormonism uh so the charismatic movement has shown itself to be remarkably flexible and um uh syncretistic they'll they'll adopt ideas from any other uh type of religion that they, they can absorb and get into and as a result the the evangelical movement the mainstream evangelical movement which has its own theological issues frankly uh but as a result they've absorbed more and more deviant charismatic ideas mysticism and uh superstition about what the holy spirit is leading me to do and that sort of thing uh, and it may seem on the face of it innocuous, but I'm I'm certain it's not. I think the the basic idea of the charismatic movement undermines the principle of sola scriptura and the sufficiency yeah, of scripture. Right. Uh, and so the more it worms its way in, the bigger problem it is. You you made a distinction in, in your introduction between charismatic doctrine and continuationist thinking, and there is a valid distinction to be made there. A continuationist would be someone who believes the spiritual gifts, the, the miraculous spiritual gifts, the charismatic gifts didn't cease in the apostolic era, but they've continued throughout the church history. In order to hold that view, you have to embrace and adopt a whole lot of really questionable stuff from church history. It's a, it's a parallel to the Baptist trail of blood history where, you know, you have Baptists who desperately want to trace an unbroken line of Baptist history all the way back to John the Baptist. And in order to do that, they embrace all kinds of heretics and weirdos. Uh, anybody who was outside the mainstream of, you know, Catholic Catholicity, not Roman Catholicism, Catholicity, uh, there are some Baptists who are willing to embrace. And as a result, they drop their defenses on important doctrinal issues and embrace groups that frankly were heretical and cultish. And it's similar, I think, with continuationists. They, there's a gullibility that underlies this notion that these miraculous gifts that are described in the early chapters of Acts have continued through church history. And, and if in order to believe that, you have to be willing to accept a lot of questionable stories about this thing happened or that thing happened. And particularly now in the modern era where, you know, everybody has cell phones and everything can be taped. It amazes me that anyone would believe a story like the one that was circulating about a decade ago with uh, Bethel Church in Reading, where a group of their teenagers claimed they'd been able to walk on water. And I said from the beginning, that didn't happen. I know it didn't happen because Teenagers all have cell phones and they video everything. If a group of <laughs> them were true. walking on water, yeah. we'd have video proof yeah, of it. Yeah, you know? yeah. But in order to be a continuationist or a charismatic, you have to you have to bring a blind gullibility to stories like that. And it tends to make people 
uh, very superstitious and gullible, and that's a dangerous place to mm-hmm. be in. The other thing about uh, continuationism too is I would I would see that as a really lazy form of charismatic belief, you know, where I believe in the miracles, I just can't show you any of them. Mm. Uh, But I'm convinced that they've never ceased, that these gifts are fully operative today. I just can't point to a single prophet whose prophecies are correct. And I can't point to a single tongue speaker who can speak a language that anybody else can understand. Uh, And my argument always has been that that's there's really a de facto kind of cessationism there. They're not really mm-hmm. charismatics. They're not really continuationists because their whole argument hinges on the idea that what we're seeing today isn't really apostolic quality miracles, yeah. but, you know, I'm supposed to believe they're miracles nonetheless. And uh, I, I just think that's a, that's a deliberately a deliberate it takes a deliberate suspension mm-hmm. of discernment and r- rationality in order to buy a theology like that so i'm a cessationist i believe based on biblical evidence that the gifts that are described in the early chapters of acts where multitudes were or maybe not multitudes but lots of miracles were done people were healed uh people like People with congenital lameness could stand up instantly and jump and walk. I mean, obvious, undeniable miracles happening in the early chapters of Acts, but you don't see them even before the close of the New Testament canon. You know, Paul leaves Trophimus at Miletus sick, and he tells Timothy to take a little wine to cure his stomach ailments. So it's obvious that the gifts of healing that were, that were, so prevalent in the early chapters of Acts are not operative by the time you get to the end of the New Testament. And uh, on that basis, then, I have to say, uh, it, it seems obvious to me from Scripture alone that this is not how God ordinarily works through miracles. It's the very definition of a, a miracle is that it's a suspension of the ordinary uh, operation of divine providence where God interrupts, uh, you know, n- the flow of natural events and, and, you know, changes the course of history in a way that is undeniably a a divine intervention in the affairs of, of this earth. And we don't see that happening. What we see are uh, either obviously phony miracles or, or seriously questionable Mm. ones. And, and those are not the kinds of miracles that are happening in scripture. Yeah. If I can jump in, Phil, I often have to, I often have to try to make a distinction also with people about the difference between miracles and the gift of miracles. We're not saying miracles have stopped, that God doesn't produce any miracles. Uh, Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, I'm a Calvinist and believe in the sovereignty of God. God can do whatever he wants. Uh, The question is, is he doing this? Is there evidence Mm -hmm. that he's doing this? And the answer is clearly not. Uh, just clearly not. I mean, yeah. especially in this technological age, if people were being raised from the dead and people were speaking understandable languages that they'd never learned and people were walking on water or all the things that are claimed, uh, there would be undeniable proof of this in, in Scripture. Uh, Jesus never did his miracles in a corner where nobody could see. He did miracles that everybody observed, and even his bitterest enemies couldn't question or deny. I mean, he takes a bit of mud made from his own spit, 
and essentially creates new eyeballs for a guy who was born blind. Uh, and he does this in a crowded venue where people who knew this man all his life and knew that he was congenitally blind uh, could not possibly explain how he could suddenly see with normal eyes. Uh, that's the sort of miracle that it would take to convince me that uh, the continuationist idea is credible. Yeah. Well, I will just let you know uh, that I, in fact, have proof that you can walk in water because, <laughs> brother, I live in Alaska and I have ice fishing pictures. It's just the water is frozen. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but yeah. And, and so I like to make the distinction. I, one, of, one of my greatest joys and to be quite frank in God's providence and humanly speaking, uh, ironic, um, is that I came out of the charismatic movement where at some stage I preached against John MacArthur and then I ended up attending seminary there and uh, even studying the charismatic theology under uh, Nathan Buzznitz and the, it fantastic class. But um, it, yeah, and so when, when we talk about continuationists versus when I would say, when I would talk about charismatics, the distinction would be those who are um, like you say, really, and I think John Piper says this too, right? Or at least he used to, that he's a functional cessationist. He believed the, I don't know if that's changed or not, but uh, he would say he believed in all the, that the gifts have continued, but he doesn't see any of them functioning the way we see them function in scripture versus uh, you mentioned uh, Bethel, right? Out in Redding, California, um, Bill Johnson, right? Uh, who I would just put in the broader charismatic camp of, just some absolute crazy and weird stuff going on reports of you know gold dust which was you know people put uh whatever gold glitter in 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 the uh, the air conditioning units and said it was gold dust and uh claim that gemstones miraculously appear in people's hands but they disappear the moment you walk out the door how convenient right uh and all those sorts of things but to to try to um maybe shift this a little bit towards our audience because I think a lot of guys who listen to us will be like, yeah, we don't, we're not in danger of believing that kind of thing. Um, if, if, if someone claims that the, the, the dead's being healed, we need to see it. We understand that the news media would be all over that, uh, that kind of thing. But let me ask you this, Phil, where do you think these kind of more charismatic beliefs have crept into some of our circles. I mean, just as for one example, uh, I know you hear a lot in the Baptist world. Um, people will say things like, "Well, I just, I just have a real peace about this, or a real peace about that." Um, what, what are some of those areas that you think our circles need to be a little more guarded against this kind of thing? Yeah, and what you're describing there is is a kind of mysticism that is rooted in the same misunderstanding that gave rise originally to the charismatic movement, the idea that the Holy Spirit uh, frequently works apart from the word. Uh, I just, you know, I don't believe that. I believe in the word and the spirit, but I believe they are, are functioning together, that the spirit doesn't uh, give us new revelation, fresh, fresh ideas that come into our heads through a still small voice that give us, you know, basically prophetic revelation that's not in scripture. I think that the dangers of that are profound. Uh, Spurgeon, who had some experiences that he described where he, that were quasi mystical like that, where remarkable 
things happen to him by providence and uh, and yet he he constantly counseled people don't order your life by some mystical voice in your head follow the word of god that's the authority that's the only reliable authority we have and uh and and the danger is i think epitomized in stuff like the book that came out about 20 years ago uh, among southern baptists experiencing god by henry blackaby uh, where he was basically saying, in fact, I think he literally said that if you're not hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit outside of Scripture, then you're not really experiencing God the way he intends. Mm-hmm. And so he schooled a whole group of a whole generation of Southern Baptists to listen for a voice in their head. And the problem with that is it's it's really no more reliable. And, and even Henry Blackaby and his more rational moments would admit this it's not an infallible guide it's it's ultimately no more reliable than the morning horoscope in your newspaper which means it's feeding on a superstitious bent that uh scripture actually condemns this notion that you know we should seek information about the future or or secret things that the lord hasn't revealed in his word through some kind of occult means and listening to a voice in your head is the very definition of occultism you may think that's the holy spirit but you don't have any means of of uh, distinguishing that from a total lie that satan might somehow infuse into your brain or that your own flesh concocts and you you're it's just your imagination and because it is unreliable it's dangerous to follow that as if this was the voice of God. I've told people, look, I have intuitions sometimes that turn out to be right. I think we've all had those experiences where I kind of felt something was going to happen or I knew it, but I did. I didn't know how it wasn't a rational thought, but it turned out I was right. Uh, That happens sometimes. It's, it's infallible. I mean, it isn't infallible. I noticed that, uh, my instincts are wrong as often as they're right, but they're right often enough that I think there's there's something going on there, whether it's my own subconscious rational brain figuring out something that I didn't consciously think about or is the Holy Spirit, and I'm willing to grant this, the Holy Spirit is providentially using some means to provoke me or or push me, but I'm not told in scripture to listen for that or obey it. There's no obligation to obey it. Uh, It's just one of the ways that the Lord providentially orders our steps. And if you begin to pay too much attention to it or or impute to it, the idea that it's infallible and this is the voice of God, then you, you have opened your heart to a dangerous kind of superstition. So I always tell people, look, if you've, if you're trying to make a decision and you have a feeling that you ought to do this thing, and what you're inclined to do isn't opposed to any scripture. Uh, it has nothing to do with any biblical thing or whatever. Then go ahead and do what you want to do and trust the Lord that he will guide your steps accordingly and close the door to that opportunity if it's the wrong thing. That's called living by faith. But the minute you start to think, well, that feeling is revelation from God and I'm obliged to obey it. You've gone beyond what Scripture commands you to do, and you're in dangerous territory. And that's the kind of thinking that generates cults and, mm-hmm. and false, false teachings. 
Yeah, well, you know, in those moments, effectively, what we're saying is that there's an authority greater than Scripture, right? In that moment, we're, right. we're saying our feeling is greater than the authority of Scripture or whatever it is. Or, or fresher, that's a word you, you, you hear charismatics use a lot. We have fresh revelation. And so they set the scriptures aside in order to exegete some guy's dream or vision because it's fresher, they think. Uh, and that is, that is a very low, dangerously low view of scripture. Uh, but you hear it all the time, and not just from charismatics, as you, as you said, that, that kind of superstitious following of inner promptings and, and voices in your head, uh, that, is, that is a problem beyond the walls of the charismatic movement. It has been for a long time. There's actually a, a story in the biography of uh, George Whitfield, and George Whitfield is one of my favorite, one of my top three favorite characters from church history. Uh, and one of my other top three favorite characters from church history is Cotton Mather. And both of them, they lived uh, a generation apart, in, and both of them uh, were in and around New England. Uh, as far as I know, they never, well, in fact, I'm, I'm certain they never actually met. But both of them had a tendency to uh, kind of listen to for an inner prompting. And, and for a while, both of them experimented with the idea that God was giving them some special assurance of some, you know, thing that's about to happen or whatever. And they would declare these as if they were prophecies. And both of them were embarrassed by that and set the idea aside. Both of them came to the conclusion that that voice in your head, Mather called it a, a particular faith. He, he would just have this inner assurance. And he said, it's a particular faith. And uh, and Whitfield just believed it was, you know, God's leading. Both of them ultimately came uh, to the conclusion that that's unreliable and, and people should not be encouraged to order their lives by the voice in their head. Yeah, I think you're, you're bringing up why this is so dangerous. You were talking about how um, charismatic theology, kind of this thinking about feelings and emotions, it, it seems kind of benign on the surface. But you really can't go that direction without compromising on the sufficiency of Scripture. And Scripture is crystal clear on its sufficiency. It says nowhere to rely on your feelings and emotions. But once we start going that way, you know, we, we're not far removed from a, a judge's situation where everyone does what is right in their own eyes, right? Right, right. And, and in fact, you make an important point. There, there's nothing in Scripture that ever encourages Christians to think or make decisions that way. And yet it's a prevalent problem. And, and again, not just associated with the charismatic movement. It, 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 you can trace the thread of that same kind of thing all the way through church history and wherever it surfaces, uh, it poses significant dangers. Usually it spins off a cult or, or, uh, you know, embarrasses somebody because they declared something that they were absolutely certain God had revealed to them, and it turned out they were wrong. Yeah, and I think that's important because what we're talking about is not merely just academic, but when I, talk, when I think about the charismatic gifts, I often point to, one, church history, um, that, that we didn't see this continuing in church history, not in any reasonable way. Two is pattern. Um, what's showing up now doesn't follow the pattern, um, but I think three, and what we're getting at is is theology. I mean, I, I think what we're seeing is a pattern of just bad theology with these movements. Yeah. Yep. No question about it. And the fruits of the charismatic movement are, are so um, 
ubiquitous. I mean, it, it, this this is a movement that has gone through every part of the world, and I've traveled to every inhabited con- continent on on the earth, and every place I've ever gone, there are Christians who've been left in utter confusion, bewilderment, or bad doctrine because of the charismatic movement. And uh, I think the uh, the the damage that's done, people don't often assess correctly. They they look at the crowds that come to hear Benny Hinn or whatever and say, well, look, you know, there's fruit that you can't deny there. And as if the the presence of large numbers of people is proof that this is good fruit. But the fruit we're supposed to evaluate, according to scripture, is the 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 uh, quality of a person's doctrine, or at least includes that. And uh, wherever the charismatic movement has gone, confusion and false doctrine has followed. Uh, fake and and misleading prophecies are made. Phony miracles abound. Uh, the, the fruits of it have been terrible. And in the wake of that, you have multitudes who have bought into the movement because they think this is Christianity. And when they get disappointed, they abandon the faith completely. This happened to my best friend throughout junior high and high school. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is the heart of the charismatic movement. It was the headquarters for Kenneth Hagan, Oral Roberts. It's where Kenneth Copeland went to train. I mean, every big name charismatic has some tie back to Tulsa because that's where Oral Roberts University is. And so I grew up in the midst of this. And my best friend was the son of a a fairly well-known Assemblies of God evangelist who was known for as a faith healer, and he, he, he didn't do a lot in America, but he traveled the world and in third world countries, undeveloped countries, he could fill football stadiums with crowds of people. I've seen photographs where he was claiming to uh, open the ears of the deaf and all of this stuff. And, and his son, my best friend, absolutely believed that all of this was real. And, um, and in fact, my own my mother contracted a muscle disease when I was in junior high, uh, the, the chronic thing that kept her disabled for the rest of her life. And my friend was constantly telling me that if she just had enough faith, she'd be healed. He blamed her for wow. her sickness, that sort of thing. Uh, well, then I became a Christian accidentally, you know, uh, a month before I graduated from high school, I opened the Bible at random and started to read and was so convicted that within a week I was begging God's forgiveness and had come to Christ and had a, through a series of providential events, had encountered a fairly good understanding of the gospel. And I remember thinking, I've known this guy for, you know, six years. He's been my best friend. He's tried to get me to speak in tongues. He never challenged me with the gospel. Never, never. Mm you know, gave me the gospel or anything. So that was the beginning of my sort of disaffection with that. I mean, he was still a friend and all that. And then just weeks after I came to Christ, his father, the faith healer, contracted an incurable kind of bone cancer that took his life over the next three or four years. And he wasted away in a very painful kind of bone cancer that took his life. And his son, my best friend, abandoned the faith completely because he decided his father, who had supposedly healed all these people, couldn't be healed of his cancer. And he realized this has all been fake. Hmm. And uh, he thought Christianity itself was fake. And so he abandoned the faith. 
Um, yeah, and I think tightly connected to um, charismatic theology has really been the health, wealth, prosperity movement. Um, they, they go hand in hand. They cross denominations, and uh, there, there's all kinds of other uh, bad theology that comes out of that. That seems to be a consistent pattern. Would you agree? Yes, and, and I would blame, I put most of the blame for that at the feet of Kenneth Hagin, who borrowed a lot of faulty ideas from Christian science and other cultish uh, sources and blended it with charismatic doctrine. And, uh, and through that, it infused a lot of these health, wealth, and prosperity ideas throughout the movement. It, it turned out to be a great fundraising tool. And, uh, and so I, I think that accounts for its popularity among, you know, televangelists and so on. Um, but it, it's a horrible doctrine because it takes from people who can least afford it yeah. uh, what little financial resources they have with the promise that they're going to be rich if they just give this money to God. And again, I think in the wake of that, you have multitudes of people who become disaffected and disappointed and have abandoned the faith. And now they're inoculated against the, the true gospel because they've been force fed this phony brand of Christianity that made the evangelist really wealthy, but destroyed the people that he he's basically stealing from it's i can't think of a worse thing that's ever been done in the history of the church on such a wide scale in the name of christ it, it's it's wicked now phil let me ask you this so we're looking at the charismatic church we're thinking about guys who are calvinists in our own circle uh kind of asking the question well you know, uh, how susceptible are we? We've talked about a little bit of that stuff. Um, you know, where I, I think we tend to not be as susceptible to things like gold dust and you know, some of the crazier stuff, um, which having come out of the charismatic church myself, I would say that stuff is way more prevalent than people realize. Uh, the, the, the crazy fringe stuff is not crazy and fringe. It's normative uh, when you are really in those areas. But when we talk about the the threat to the church in general, um, even again, guys who are Calvinists who believe like what we, like we believe, we've got a lot of threats to the church out there, right? We've got feminism. Uh, you've got the whole critical theory and critical race theory now. You've got uh, emotionalism. You've got all these different threats to the church. Where would you place charismaticism in the midst of all of that is because I think, you know, um, feminism has attached itself very well to the charismatic church, right? We've got all kind of quote unquote women pastors, so-called um, I've seen uh, Bill Johnson in Bethel, California. They had a um, so-called prophetess playing the part of Gandalf on stage, trying to rebuke racism, right? So you've got your critical race theory stuff there. Where would you place uh, the, the threat to the church? That comes well, never, from this movement. I've never actually thought of it in those terms. I, how where I would rank it, if I had to make a list of threats to the clarity of the gospel and and you know things that undermine evangelical orthodoxy, it'd be up there in the top five probably. Mm. Uh, and like I said earlier, it it has a remarkable ability to syncretize other errors. Catholics uh, and and uh, Mormons and all of that have sort of been absorbed by the charismatic movement. And, and I, I remember a, a charismatic meeting I attended in Chicago back in the probably in the late 70s, early 80s. 
where a friend of mine said, no, come to this different sort of thing. I know you don't like charismatic theology, but I, I think you'll really be this is instructive. It's a whole different kind of thing. So I go to this meeting thinking it's going to be maybe a, a little higher brand of charismatic doctrine and whatever. But one of the speakers that night was a Roman Catholic priest decked in his full priestly garb and all of that, who was asked to give his personal testimony. And he described how he received the gift of tongues when he was praying to Mary. And he believed that it was Mary who gave him the gift of tongues. And I just remember being flabbergasted at this, looking around the room full of wow. Protestant. This was Assemblies of God Church. So uh, all Protestant people, and they're all nodding in agreement with this priest. And then the pastor gets up and says, you know, that that that's most unusual testimony I've ever heard. But he said, I don't care where you got the Holy Spirit. If you've got it, you're one of us. Hmm. And so they just this whole church just before my eyes, embraced all of the errors of Roman Catholicism and, in essence, denied the gospel for wow. the sake of this guy's yeah. experience. Uh, and that's that's how, you know, charismatic syncretism works. Uh, the gift of tongues is the most important thing, or more lately, it's the gift of prophecy and and so on. How dangerous is it to Calvinists? I think it's significant. It's a significant danger because of this notion that, well, I believe the gifts are ongoing. I, I wouldn't necessarily affirm somebody like Todd Bentley, but I'm not going to speak against him either, because no. what if I'm blaspheming the Holy Spirit? And, mm. and no less than John Piper made exactly that stance with regard to Todd Bentley when Bentley first came on the scene. Here's mm. this this obviously aberrant uh i don't know former whatever he is tattooed up and all this stuff and everything about him was purposely countercultural, not against secular culture but against the whole culture of christianity uh he didn't say anything that showed any signs of doctrinal understanding he never got anywhere near the gospel everything about this guy screamed phony he talked about kicking old ladies in the stomach in order to hear heal them and he told these bizarre stories about people he had brutalized and they'd been healed and everything about him was just toxic uh and yet and people pleaded with john piper say something about this for all of the continuationists who are being silent warned them about this and he was like didn't want to say anything he figured ultimately the truth would come out well ultimately it did but uh, not not before lots of people had a chance to be both led astray and inoculated against the truth of of the gospel because they had they had bought into this todd bentley nonsense and there are still people who follow him yeah so yeah I think it's a danger mainly because it encourages even some of the most sound-minded uh, uh, Calvinists who, who, if you ask them to explain the gospel, they, they understand it. They're, they're definitely brothers in Christ, and, and we agree on many things, and yet they refuse to, to look at any charismatic claim with any kind of critical um, you know, suspicion, I suppose, is the right word, because they're fearful that they're going to, you know, commit the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit by questioning whether he really did something. So it, it, the, the best you'll ever get from them is 
I don't know. Let's wait and see. The, never a, a voice of discernment saying, watch out for this, because this is this is dangerous, deadly error, even when it really obviously is. Uh, that's a that's a bad thing. You, you know that uh, <clears throat> you brought up that that story about going to kind of that charismatic meeting and, and hearing that priest go up there and and then the pastor saying, well, as long as he's got the spirit. And I think part of this issue is recognizing what the fruit of the spirit is, right? Um, yeah. Because, because I, I mean, I, I know that this accusation has been levied against John MacArthur. I, I've heard it myself within the Thai community that um, that I'm, I'm a really good teacher. I understand the Bible, but I'm not spirit filled. And but they're not speaking in biblical terms because to be spirit filled has nothing to do with the charismatic gifts. It's it's about the fruit of the spirit that those who understand the scriptures and, and trust the scriptures know, know it to be sufficient. They recognize it in other people when they hear the scriptures being faithfully taught. They recognize it in a person's behavior and conduct and, and demeanor. And, and it's, it's troubling that we would put so much value on a charismatic gift to the point where a Todd Bentley, a lot of his behavior gets overlooked. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, Scripture is very clear. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Not a word about speaking in tongues or prophesying. And yet, that is, you're right, that's the dominant notion among both charismatics and non-charismatic continuationists that... uh, you don't really see the Holy Spirit working in a person's life unless he's manifesting some kind of the hmm. supernatural and miraculous yeah. gift. And that that idea in and of itself is contrary to Scripture. I've often said, in fact, I recently had a recorded discussion with John MacArthur that we're going to release in the weeks to come. Spent an hour in the studio with him just last week talking about the doctrine of divine providence. That is the idea that God is at work in everything he created to make sure that everything he's made achieves the end he made it for. Hmm. So that God is controlling, even when it looks like things are out of control, God is still in control. And uh, evil will never win. And, you know, the Lord will ultimately defeat all evil and banish it from the universe. And in the meantime, he's doing everything he pleases, and nobody can thwart his will. Doctrine of Providence, constantly ordering and orchestrating things in and around our lives so that to to assure that all things work together for our good. Uh, That's what we believe. So so God is at work all the time. That's the point of the Doctrine of Providence. The charismatic idea is God isn't really working unless he intervenes with miracles. So in order to convince ourselves that God is really at work, that the Holy Spirit is active today, we have to invent miracles to bolster our faith and everybody else's faith. It's actually a um, it's actually a very weak faith that demands that sort of miraculous evidence to convince yourself that God is at work behind the scenes. Yeah, and it also it would overlooks the fact that the Spirit's ministry to us was providing us with the Word of God. Um, so, so the word of God is a work of the spirit and the spirit works within us to illuminate our hearts and our minds to receive it and to understand it and also gives us the gift to be able to teach it as well. And I often point to uh, Paul, you know, after his life was about to come to an end or when he thought it was about to come to an end, his final letter writes it to Timothy and, and what's the command that he emphasizes beyond other, all other commands? It's to preach the word. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it's an interesting position because um, if you look at the history of miracles and how God's people have responded, they've never kept people faithful. I mean, just look at Israel, right? Uh, you know, coming out of Egypt, I mean, 10 times, right? They, they lived with miracles and 10 times uh, they were unfaithful to God. I mean, they heard the audible vo- voice of God. They had, a, you know, the, the pillars by day and by night, um, all this miraculous stuff that, you know, the charismatic church would just love to see, and yet it never kept them faithful. And so it seems um, that while, yes, uh, we would look at a, a genuine miracle of God, should we see one, and we praise God for it, and we thank God for those, you know, but understand that they've never kept people faithful. Um, and the point never was uh, for for that. And even in, you know, in the book of Acts, where we see uh, the miracle signs and wonders sort of validating the the apostolic message and their authority and for the foundation of the church. Um, it, it wasn't for, it, it was primarily so that the gospel would go out to people who didn't have it. It wasn't sort of this, um, you know, just, just the apostles getting together and seeing how cool miracles could happen. Uh, but that's what happens in the charismatic church, right? It's never connected to the gospel going anywhere. And so you just don't see any consistency uh, with scripture. But Phil, let me ask you, okay, so we've got, uh, let let me, for the last few minutes we have here, kind of bring this back to pastors, just kind of brass tacks. Um, You've got guys uh, who are Calvinists, they're pastoring, and they say, okay, well, you know, maybe some of my people are susceptible to this kind of thing. They pick up a book by Blackaby and they get that. Or, you know, now in, in the media age we live in, I think it's just safe to assume uh, that the people we shepherd and pastor are going to be exposed to this stuff, whether it's on TV, on Twitter, on whatever's out there. Um, and, and so now they're asking the question, well, we don't really talk about these things. What's the best way to go about guarding God's people from getting trapped into the, well, I feel peace about it, or the, the Blackaby sensation or the emotionalism stuff? What, what would you say to those pastors? Well, I'd probably go back to the doctrine of providence and say, if you would stress this in your teaching, uh, that God is providentially working in everything that happens to us, uh, an understanding of the biblical doctrine of divine providence, I think, would cure everything that's wrong with the charismatic movement. Uh, And and it would relieve people from this notion that... uh, you know, maybe God's not working in my life unless something big and miraculous happens. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole, the essence of faith is uh, believing that, that which you can't see. I mean, that's the whole point of Hebrews 11, the heroes of the faith. A lot of them didn't receive what was promised. That to me is one of the most remarkable statements in scripture, because we know that God's promises are inviolable. He always fulfills his promise. And yet there's this whole catalog of people from the Old Testament, the, he- the chief heroes of faith, of which the writer of Hebrews sums up their lives by saying they didn't receive what was promised uh, mm-hmm. because they were looking for something even beyond that, where they will receive more than the fulfillment of every promise. Uh, if, if the nature of their faith had been that they had to see God at work before they would actually believe they wouldn't have been heroes of the faith. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, that's my response to charismatics. It's not that you all have 
stronger faith or better faith than those of us who are cessationists or that you believe God works and we don't. I believe God works in everything that happens, that he's constantly at work. Uh, And if you don't believe he's working until he intervenes with some kind of miraculous display and even weak ones at that, uh, then I would say you're the one who, who really doesn't understand and believe the way God works uh, and trust that he is working in everything that happens and he's working all things together for good. That's one of the most uh, well-known and fundamental promises of scripture, Romans eight twenty-eight, And yet I would say uh, in practice, most charismatics don't really believe that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I often, I, I often think the miracle of scripture, you know, you go through passages and you can't help but to be just convinced that there's no way that man in his own wisdom could have written what was written in the scriptures and to see God's good and divine providence uh, all throughout, like, for instance, the the story of Joseph um, as he was uh, sent into Egypt and, and all throughout scripture, how Jesus was sent to the cross and how Peter could say that uh, this was according to the foreordained plan of God, and yet you nailed him to the cross, how, how God can take sinful actions and in his sovereignty, make sure that they come out for his good purposes. That, that to me, are, are miracles beyond uh, what people are typically pursuing with, with the tongues and, and the, the, the kind of prophetic utterances. Yeah. You know, I think it, looking at this last couple of years, especially, um, I, I, I think we see clearly the charismatic movement is not going away. Right. So uh, if after two years of covid with all of the supposed healers that are around the world um, <clears throat> and no one getting healed, you, you would have thought maybe that would have crushed the movement, but it, it didn't. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking back to the beginning of covid when uh bill johnson closed down their healing rooms right because of covid uh which was just i I, when i first saw that i thought okay uh, they're they're gonna be lots of people wake up uh but that that didn't seem to happen and then uh, a few weeks later uh they reopened their healing rooms but they did it online so that no one would get COVID, um, right? And so I, I think uh, it, it's comical in some ways. It's very sad in other ways. And, and of course, you had all the prophecies that went on about COVID, which every single one of those were proven false. Um, but it seems like they've not, you know, lost many followers. And so it's here to stay, I think. And I think you really, I hadn't really thought about it the way you said, but it is really so syncretistic. And I think that keeps it alive, um, and, and that's what makes it so dangerous for, you know, guys in our own camp who would not maybe be as susceptible to, um, it, you know, the fanciful healings and miraculous stuff. Although we we've all known some guys with very solid biblical training, theological training, who have seemed to kind of gone off in in the weeds. I, I can think of some that. I never would have imagined who were traveling around with Benny Hinn, and yet, and now they are. Um, and so, we definitely need to guard ourselves uh, against that. Um, I, th- I think that was a, a great comment um, about teaching the doctrine of prov- providence. Um, and, and I think, yeah, jump in there. Everything you just said underscores, I think, probably the central problem with charismatic doctrine, and that is this. In order to believe it in the first place, you have to suspend your rational faculties to some degree. You you have to you have to be a little bit irrational or or refuse to refuse to evaluate anything with a 
with a truly discerning mind and assume that, you know, if this if this guy's teaching heresy, then he can't be a true prophet. If he's making false prophets, he is by definition. Uh, if he's making false prophecies, he is by definition a, a false prophet prophet. So uh, but charismatics won't think that way. They refuse to think that way because they think there's a, a germ of unbelief in that kind of rational approach. So at its heart, it's it's irrational. And therefore, you know, when Bethel closes their healing rooms because of COVID, that doesn't strike the typical charismatic as any kind of inconsistency or re- it's not a reason to question the movement. And uh, and yet, I think uh, on, a, on a small scale, it is true that the charismatic movement and, and its credibility are dying fairly quickly, like mm-hmm. like like I, you've heard me say, ever since the uh, Strange Fire Conference, I, have, I don't think I've spoken at a single conference or church in the eight or nine years since then that I haven't met people who will come up to me and say, we were charismatics before Strange Fire. When we listened to those messages, it opened our eyes. So mm-hmm. I, I think there are lots of uh, genuine believers out there who who are capable of looking at the whole thing through a biblical lens and really coming to an understanding of the truth. It's not going to happen to the majority of the movement because in order to be there in the first place, they had to suspend that kind of discernment. But there are people who can be rescued out of that and put on a more uh, fruitful path towards, towards, you know, genuine sanctification and, and uh, understanding of the scriptures. Uh, so I, I, I'm going to keep talking about it. I, I can't believe it's actually been almost 10 years since the Strange Fire Conference. I just looked it up 2013. Wow. And I have met a lot of people as well that have been saved out of the Pentecostal movement because of that. In fact, we we just had some uh, some some members at our church that attended Grace Church for a while, moved to Arizona. And now they're commuting almost 90 miles just to be a part of our church. And uh, and, and part of uh, part of their testimony also was uh, was listening to the messages from Strange Fire. Yeah, yeah. We do need to have a uh, a sequel to that, another another conference on the charismatic movement. Well, that was going to be my last question to you, Phil. Can can you you know for for our sake convince John MacArthur to have a part two? It's not too late to do a ten year anniversary, right? Twenty twenty three coming up. <laughs> yeah, no. In fact, uh, I think that's a definite possibility. Uh, I, I think I think John MacArthur thinks. He said everything about the charismatic movement that he needs to say. What else is he going to say? Yeah. Uh, and yet, you know, here we are 10 years after Strange Fire, and that was at least 20 years after charismatic chaos. Mm-hmm. So you've got, you know, new generations of believers who are, are confused by this issue who need to hear, even if he's repeating something he said before. Uh, we've had two conferences or we've scheduled two conferences since Strange Fire, at least two uh uh, Truth Matters conferences where, and in fact, I think Justin Peters has been at all of those, and mm-hmm. he always talks about the charismatic movement. So we've had individual messages dealing with it. Uh, I think one of the last Truth Matters conference, the theme was the sufficiency of scripture. So obviously that that yeah. touches on the charismatic movement. But I think we need to have one that is explicitly a continuation of what we began with Strange Fire. The 
the conference we scheduled for 2022, we booked it at the uh, ARC Encounter in Kentucky. Mm. And the, the registration for that literally filled up in less than a half hour. I was sad. I know. <laughs> I wanted to be there. Mailing yep. list, and the mailing list was full before an hour was gone. <laughs> so I know there's a great demand for, uh, and, it, and if we have a conference in the middle of the continent rather than on the West Coast, it seems we get a lot of people who wouldn't come maybe to California. So we are currently talking about the next conference, and we're going to try to find a bigger venue. We haven't talked about topics yet, but obviously I'm I'm lobbying. I've wanted to see uh, a part two to Strange Fire since that conference ended. You remember I, I suggested we should do another one and call it Holy Smoke. <laughs> I like it. I like it. So, uh, so that's still in my mind to do that. And uh, if, if we can get it done in 2023, I'd love to see that. Awesome. Well, thank you, Phil. Thank you for uh, joining us and uh, just talking to us about the, the the threat of the of the charismatic church and how we can sort of deal with it. Um, I love the the admonition to for pastors to teach on the providence of God, and I, I think another area is that uh, that maybe we don't do so well in is is teach good pneumatology, right? So if our people know what the Holy Spirit does do, then then they'll know what He doesn't do. Um, and so yeah, thank you and, for that. And you know, for whatever reason, I think there's a reluctance to deal with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit among cessationists, and they are the ones who really ought to be teaching on the subject. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, but if you if you just look at what publishers have brought out uh, in the seventies, when I first became a Christian, there were there were lots of cessationist books dealing with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and then by the nineties, it became maybe politically incorrect or considered impolite to uh, be critical of charismatic doctrine, even among. Uh, you know, cessationists, they weren't charismatics, but they didn't want to fight over this issue that had been controversial for decades. Uh, and so they set it aside. And as a result, the charismatic movement made huge uh, ground gains in those years. And now you've got a generation of younger men who mostly think it's cool to be cess- to be continuationists, not cool to be a cessationist anymore. Uh, and so they're functionally not charismatics, but doctrinally, they don't want to embrace cessationism. So we need to actually pick up those issues and shine the, the light of Scripture on them. And let's talk about why that's, that's not a good approach to the Holy Spirit. Yeah, this is that open but cautious group that, that's ever-growing, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Phil, for joining us. We appreciate your time. Uh, We appreciate our listeners. And until next time, let the truth be known. The Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.com. In the podcast section.